And welcome again to the KI Prime podcast. My name's Alina Jenkins. And in this episode, I'm speaking to Gabrielle Finn. Gabrielle is Professor of Medical Education and Vice Dean for Teaching, Learning and Students in the Faculty of Biology, Medicine and Health at the University of Manchester in the UK. She's also Associate Editor for Perspectives in MedEd and Anatomical Sciences Education. She has a diverse research portfolio ranging from an evidence base for innovative methods of teaching anatomy, professionalism and the conscientiousness index and exploring gender discrimination within clinical academic careers. And she joins me now. Hello, Gabrielle. Hello. So I gave you that introduction uh, of what you're currently doing. But I just heard last night that you've got a brand new job. I do, yes. I'm moving to the dark side of Central University Administration. So I'll be Associate Vice President for Teaching. So outside of the medical school, working across all of the disciplines. Slightly daunting. (laughs) You say dark side, jokingly. (laughs) Um, What what changes will that bring for you? I mean, it'll really take me out of my comfort zone. I'm going to have to learn a lot about really alien disciplines. You get a sense of what else goes on in the university, but, you know, in a medical school, we're doing assessments using patients. I've never been to an assessed music recital, for example. So it's going to be vastly different. Mm. A big learning curve. When do you start? I think because it's an in-house move, I think last week, essentially, imminent. <laughs> so you should, yeah, be, you should, yeah. should be there now. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, of course, we're here to talk about your, your area of research, and it is very diverse. I asked everybody to send me over some background, and I had a, had a wonderful few hours reading everything that you're doing. I wanted to start, if, if I may, because last night we were at Astrid's art studio, and you, you said, I kind of feel like I'm connected to this, because you, you have a, an interest, you've been doing lots of research around anatomical body painting. Yes. So tell me more about that. Yeah, so... I fell into medical education, so my background was in anatomy, and I met John McLaughlin, who became my PhD supervisor, who was really interested in innovative ways of teaching anatomy, because anatomy has always been taught through typically full-body dissection, and that process is seen as a rite of passage for many medical students. And people peddle this idea that it's the only way to learn, it's the best way to learn, but, you know, technologies advance as 3D, there's all sorts of you know virtual cadavers and but we have no evidence base to show actually how do students learn anatomy and what is best. And John had been working with artists and we'd seen some early work coming out of the Netherlands where people were doing a little bit of anatomical body painting. So I kind of really find it really interesting bringing colour and life back to anatomy. So kind of dived into that trying to produce well, evidence just, you know, that students can learn in a way that's, you know, less oppressive. Because for many students, when they come to medical school, it's the first time they've encountered death. We also were teaching anatomy to enable students to examine living bodies. It's not just about being in theatre and surgical anatomy. Because if you think about most medics, when they go into clinical practice, it's in primary care, isn't it? So, it, you know, when you go to see your family doctor or your, your general practitioner, they can't dissect you on the spot. They can't do x-rays. They have to be able to feel. 
the different lumps and bumps, but we don't spend much time teaching. That's what we call surface anatomy, what you can feel and see from the outside. We don't spend much time teaching it and we don't spend much time teaching the living side of anatomy and the movement and the link between form and function. So the anatomical body painting is quite a good way to bridge that gap. But it also enables students to start to feel comfortable touching each other. So if I think about some of the students I've taught, so we have, you know, maybe Muslim medical students who've never touched another body or maybe, you know, not certainly not a body of the opposite sex. And then we're expecting them to dive straight in there and examine somebody and ask them to move breast tissue and remove clothing. And that's for any medical student, that's really intimidating. So by using the art-based approaches, it enables them to have a bit of fun, but also to be able to start to practice those professional transcripts. So develop their way of asking somebody to remove their top, take off their bra, whatever it might be. So it, it serves multiple purposes. The bridge between anatomy and clinical skills, bringing life back in, and then the colour helps students memorise it as well. So they'll remember those bright green spots that they've painted, they take lots of photos, it's all over their social media. But all of that helps with the way that then recall the information further down the line. And what really fascinated me about the background that you sent to me, Gabrielle, was how this all kind of links together. So we start off with anatomical body painting and how we're helping people learn and remember but then that linked you to to an interest in the hidden curriculum yes. and professionalism. Yeah, so when I got speaking to people about things like the anatomical body painting, they kept talking about this idea of teaching by stealth. So using the classroom and what was going on in that environment as a way to deliberately deliver teaching that's quite challenging, like the examples I'd given around professionalism and conduct and touching other bodies. The hidden curriculum is quite challenging because everyone has their idea of what it is. And it's that space where you learn the sort of unspoken rules of a place, the way things are done around here. So if you think about an example of the hidden curriculum in a clinical environment, it's, you know, somebody, it's those kind of the war stories that get passed down to the next, you know, from near peers to the next generation, you know. Don't go and ask that consultant to sign off an X-ray unless you've done X, Y, and Z. Because all of that's part of the way that you learn through the informal mechanisms. The challenge I have with it is that people talk about, first of all, using it as a deliberate space to teach. And the assumption that everybody experiences it in the same way. And they don't. It's hidden by its very definition. Some of it's hiding in plain sight, for sure. But we can't make an assumption that every student will take the same hidden tacit implied messages from what I'm saying in a lecture theatre. It might not even be on their radar. Um, So we're trying to unpack that quite a bit, Mm. which has been interesting. And that all links, particularly the hidden curriculum is often spoken about in the context of professionalism and the way the the role modelling of bad behaviour. And of course, it's not just about the negative behaviours and the unprofessional things that students might pick up on, you know, from the way a consultant speaks to a patient or a male colleague dresses down a female colleague. But it's it's in everything that we do in an institution. Yeah. And you said, you said through unpacking it that it's been interesting. So what did you, what have you uncovered? Because this sounds like a very challenging area. Yeah. I mean, I think more recently my focus on the hidden curriculums kind of morphed into my 
interests in feminist theory. So I've gone down a bit of a feminist <laughs> theory rabbit hole, looking at like gender discrimination and intersectional identities and all of that sort of thing. A good example of how my research has morphed from the hidden curriculum into this new interest in feminist theory, and I've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole, is around gender discrimination. So I mentioned earlier the idea of things hiding in plain sight. So we've done some work, um, a paper called Too Male, Too Pale, Too Stale. And, well, there's two examples. The first is I went to a conference with my merry band of wonderful female PhD students. And these young women, the first thing they pointed out at the conference dinner, which was in a royal college, was the portraits on the wall. And they were, they were pausing next to them. But it, you know, that profound impact that they weren't represented in this fine hall, this grand establishment. There was nobody who looked, thinks, sounds like them. Then the next example is if you think about clinical environments, even airports, I pointed this out to my own sons, the men's changing rooms in surgical environments are typically in theatre or right next door. Women's are down the corridor, hiding in the underground spaces in pathology. It's still, I mean, we think we've achieved some level of equality, but it's still, that discrimination is still hiding in plain sight. Airports, if you look, the men's toilets are always closer. The women's are way down. And it, you know, it's so obvious. But if you think, you know, the real impact of the hidden curriculum for lots of students is, the, is, is around the fact that they don't belong in a space. So we're doing some work at the moment around differential attainment and degree awarding gaps. So trying to understand why in our institution, black and Asian students are not coming out with as high a degree as their white counterparts. And similarly for disabled versus abled students. You know, I thought it's going to be around decolonizing the curriculum. It's going to be around the way that we set up our assessments maybe to a small degree, 5% of it's probably curriculum and assessment, and it's 95% everything else. We, we've interviewed a hun, about 160 students and colleagues, of, you know, staff working in visa offices, and it's all about those seemingly trivial everyday experiences and how that mounts up mm. and has such a profound impact on the way that somebody feels that they belong in an institution, whether that's as a student in a learning environment, whether it's as an academic, as a clinician. So, you know, it all links back. That's my, you know, I guess for me, the golden thread in my research is everything that's tacit, implied, hidden, hiding in plain sight, what lies beneath. I think we can all agree there's been great steps in probably in the last uh, 10, 20 years. Interestingly, that we're still having this conversation. So from, from the conversations that you've had from that research you started to do, what what are some of the ideas that are coming out from there so we keep moving forward? I think the thing we need to really challenge is people think we've achieved equality, that that's done, mm. that, yeah, especially with, re- with respect to gender, because there has been so much, like you said, in the media. But then, I mean, look, recently in England, dare we say yesterday in the Women's World Cup, but there isn't parity for women. Um, so I think we, you know, it's something we absolutely need to keep fighting. We're getting better in, an inst- in our institutions at thinking about the intersectional identities as well that students have. But people are really, you know, really pigeonholed. We're, we've got all of these agendas you know, around social accountability, widening access to medicine, 
Um, I saw a tweet the other day from um, a former medical student of mine saying to people, it was on the day that A-level results went out, good luck to everyone who got in, but God help you if you've got a regional accent, you're going to get rinsed. And that really resonated for me. And I'm from the northeast of England. And the assumptions that people make about the way that you're brought up. So try being a female from the northeast. And then you say that you're interested in gender and feminist theory. So then you get referred to as a feminazi or a turf or, a, you know, it's really, really challenging. People are constantly looking to degrade the work that we know needs to be done in that space. It's, it's a massive piece of work. It to, is to do. Yeah. Are you feeling more drawn to that? Do you, do you think that's where you might focus? I think yeah. so. I think the op- you know moving into this new role, working across the institution, um, and just speaking to students and understanding all of their struggles. You know, with issues like cost of living crisis, post Brexit, visas. There's so many huge issues, and it all you know equity is underlying a lot of it. Um, so I think there is a lot of work that can be done in that space and then applied to my own interests and disciplines as well within medical education and how all of that will impact patient experience and the way that we train our healthcare workers. I just mentioned there the conscientiousness yeah. index. I would really love to dig into that. I mean, that comes back into your, your research around professionalism. Yes. So the conscientiousness index was developed when I was a PhD student um, with my supervisor, John McLaughlin, and it came from some work that was reported from California, from San Francisco, um, where they'd been looking at when clinicians had been reported to the state licensing board, so to have their license to practice removed. And they'd found that actually looking back at their very early student records, they were the same people that didn't turn up with their passport photos on day one or, you know, let's say you ask them to bring, I don't know, three red pens and two black pens. It's the same students that on day one you clock them and you know they're going to be a bit of trouble, which seems quite obvious. But actually what we've been able to develop through the conscientiousness index is we're using it as a proxy for professionalism. So we're thinking about diligence and how these seemingly trivial little things, so we would award points to a student and there's no maximum. The maximum points will be whoever gets the highest score for that cohort and then we can look at you know standard deviations of that as a way to have a cut for who's essentially who's professional and who isn't who needs remediation and help so we would award points to students for for these seemingly trivial activities so bringing your passport photos at registration bringing your criminal record check your immunization forms all of those things because you know we talk about sort of 5% of the students taking up 95% of your time or one per- in my case as a vice dean it's been 1% of students taking up 99% of your time and there are these kind of trivial rumbling patterns of behaviour and if we can help students to remediate that then hopefully whether whether you could argue that it would stop huge lapses in unprofessional behaviour further down the line it's maybe a little early to tell although there, are, there is some more recent in um, research from some of my colleagues are starting to look at the predictive validity of the conscientiousness index. But when we had the scores and we asked, so we blinded the scores, took some names, shoveled it all up and gave a list of 30 names to colleagues, to both peers and to academic colleagues and asked them to say whether they thought they were unprofessional 
or not. It did correlate with the index. It does seem to be digging into all those kind of latent traits and hidden behaviours. One of the reasons I love having these conversations over the last three years with the, with the Care Prime Fellows and the winners is that you often hear ideas and you think that has so many other applications, mm. not just in the world of medical education mm. research. So is there, is there some interest? Yeah. In so, I mean, when it, when it was first published, it hit the papers as being like likened to the minority report, you know, trying people before they'd committed the crime. And it didn't go down too well, but it has been adapted and we've used it with anaesthetists in clinical environments, looking at, you know, whether they're, so an example of the kind of things that you might award points for in that case to create an index for things like putting their general medical council registry, you know, their ID number um, on documentation and looking at sort of auditing things that they should have done. It's been used in law, teaching, so it's really, you know, adapted pretty well in other professions. Mm. And the the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, Gabrielle, is because I'm always fascinated by people who do novel research. That's, yes. <laughs> it's kind of like completely out there. They think, how did I come up with this? Could you expand more on what you've been doing around Google and Loveless? Yes. So I've been working with a former PhD student, Dr. Bill Laffey, who's a general practitioner um, in the UK. And Bill was really interested in exploring empathy. And he'd reached out to Ariel, who is a lady working at Google, and she's in part of their user experience. And Google used this idea of love and breakup letters as, as a way to test products, essentially. So they might give you a new product or a, you know, a recent release on something, and it's they'll ask customers to write a love letter to it or write a breakup letter to it. And then, you know, they'll have conversations around that. So we've used this within medical education. So we ask students to write both a love letter and a breakup letter. So there are some nuanced differences in the way that we applied it, but we worked with Google to develop it. So you would write a love letter to the idea of empathy and a breakup letter. And I have to say, some of them were phenomenal. I mean, students freaked out a little <laughs> bit first at the idea of having to write something. You know, dear empathy, I love the way that, I mean, this is me oversimplifying, but dear empathy, I love the way that you help me connect with patients and show them that I care. Or dear empathy, I hate the way that you've become a really reductionist tick box activity, you know, that we get scored points for making totally disingenuous, empathetic statements in a clinical exam. Um, and some of the students wrote some things that were really poetic and deep. And then they all read out their love letters, all read out their breakup letters, and we did focus groups as well. So we got multiple sources of data, which for education researchers is wonderful. Mm -hmm. and we've got the letters that we can analyse. And then we've also got the focus groups, or we've used it in interviews as well. We also did it with students who'd come through widening access programmes in the UK or in the States, so we'd call it like underrepresented in medicine. So typically the criteria would be if family in prison, being in a care system, first generation, low socioeconomic status, mm. so and you know, and usually intersecting, and we asked them about their widening access programs. And I consider myself quite a tough cookie. I'm not an overly emotional, and those letters had me in tears. They were so profound. You to really hear, you could hear the students' voices and the challenges. You know, how, how these programs had absolutely enabled them to better their lives, to make their families proud, to get out of deprivation. 
But then on the other side, and again, it actually comes down to, you know, the whole pigeonholing and the issues that they'd had with being bullied for their regional accents, being, you know, disregarded as being thick or a charity case. Um, you know, one of the quotes from the letters was from a student saying how that, you know, they felt so alienated within their cohort. So all of the other members of, so it was a school where they did problem-based learning in small groups. All the other members of their group had parents who were consultants or medics and they were talking about, you know, world affairs, politics, the state of the NHS, Brexit, whatever it might be over dinner. And she was saying, my dad's a bus driver. He comes in, we have a microwave meal and watch the telly. You know, nobody wants to engage the tired and just pulling out those differences and showing, really emphasizing the way that it's, you know, sometimes there's a real tension in the work that we're trying to do to make people part of this, you know, to engage and to widen and make medicine more diverse. It can actually be quite detrimental to the people that we're trying to help as well. Did you expect to get those findings to link it back to what? No, I thought it was going to be quite practical, Mm. you know, because it is a a user experience methodology and it looks at, you know, if you think about its roots in product development, I thought it would say, you know, there's the finances of having to do an extra year. That's a challenge. So I thought I'd get maybe a a semi-decent list of pros and cons. Um, But this was with my PhD student, Angelique Duenas, who'd come over from California to study with us. and. The things that she found from those data sets were really profound and, you know, I think will have a really positive impact on all of the agenda to, you know, with social mobility in the UK. It's so fascinating. And just linking then positive impact, just to my, my final question is, is while we're all here, here in Stockholm for KR Prime Fellows 2023, what, what does it mean to you to be here? It's, I mean, a phenomenal opportunity, really exciting with the imposter syndrome's through the roof. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be able to get that, you know, dedicated time from some of the leaders in our field. But I also feel the pressure, especially for, you know, um, the person who nominated me not to let them down. Yeah. Um, it's exciting, though. even just, even just listening this morning to people discuss some of the struggles that they'd had with their own identity mm-hmm. and trying to, you know, communicate their really complex research ideas essentially to us as we're we're back to being lay in that you know I understand a bit about psychometrics but I'm not an expert so to then try and really get the essence of what a psychometrician's working on is you know challenging and interesting yeah pretty much everyone's having that same imposter syndrome (laughs) I don't I don't think you're alone and it's just fascinating for me I mean you know see your, your body of work and you do all of this with two small children as well I just I don't don't quite know how you do it. Gabrielle, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening at home. We'll be back very soon with another episode of the KI Prime podcast. For now, goodbye.